Hello, filmmakers and watchers and lovers of and dreamers and thinkers about film. On today's episode of How to Make a Film, Dan and I talk about the beguiling accents of actors. Why Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, for example, sounded exactly like Kevin Costner in Yellowstone or Kevin Costner anywhere. Courtesy of listener Juliet, we discuss the fine art of casting, how it's done, when it's done, and how casting is a little more than just finding the best person for the role. And we have a special guest. Dan's very own filmmaking business advisor, James Crawley, joins us to provide some very sound tips on how to raise money for your film. Accents, casting, and a little business advice, among other how-to-make-a-film type things. My name is Sean Hurley. I'm a playwright and TV show staff writer, and sitting directly across the immense Atlantic Ocean from me is Dan Freeman. Writer, director, lovely person, and the mighty force behind the film in progress, Hold Excalibur. Hello, Sean. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good, thanks. Um, pretty good? Got, yeah. Well, British people don't say, oh, hey, I'm doing great. You know, it's like, You're supposed uh, to start the podcast out with a bang, like you're in the best mood ever and you just can't wait. That's what we do in the United States. Over there, it's a little bit more realistic, maybe. <laughs> well, we don't do that because we're British, by God. We okay. Don't, we don't. Well, I'm doing great over here, so I'll balance you out. You savages. That's just, yeah. that's just not how civilized people behave. But anyway. It's false cheer. I'll take false cheer, you know, over British misery, genuine misery. Okay. Because if you go into a shop in the in the States, people go, hey, how are you doing? You know, I mean, I know they don't mean it, but it's nice. You know, it feels good. If you do it in Britain. I think they might mean it. I don't know. Well, yeah, they you might. can never be sure. They, at least they do it. And in Britain, yeah. there's a sort of, um, yeah, a reluctance to, to, to be helpful. But anyway. Well, we love being sort of false here there's a great yeah there's a great deal of inauthentic cheeriness and cruelty and it all seems fake to me but you never know you know if you encounter the false cheer that's that's fine it's nice it's just you know it's not an impediment to your day you just kind of go right through it like cotton candy which we call candy floss in britain just fyi i know i don't think that's that's not right well it is right because we were here first it's not correct mind you you probably invented we it we invented it yeah okay we did and then you took it and you said how can we make this much worse and then sell it sadly in our shops <laughs> candy floss you know i've got a film related thing that's good yeah <laughs> there's a, a beloved tree in britain on hadrian's wall it's featured in the 1991 Robin Hood film with Kevin Costner, but it's been much photographed. And some bugger chopped it down <laughs> and chainsawed it. Is that the tree and that's a... in the in the valley? There's sort of like this yeah. beautiful valley. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That seems like it would be such an observed tree that nobody would ever be able to touch it. Mm. Like there'd always be someone there. Well, I, I imagine it's pretty remote. Uh, Hadrian's Wall is, yeah. it goes through quite some remote places but it just reminded me about this sort of british and american thing of cultural appropriation of your of candy floss i remember being quite surprised going in to see a film about robin hood and it wasn't robin hood it was robin hood and it was kevin costner not <laughs> not even attempting an english accent me and my friends were sitting in the cinema going what is it is he? Robin Hood wasn't American. And... I'm sure he tried. I don't think you know, he did, you know. During the first two weeks of production, I'm sure he was trying. 
I'm sure they had a vocal coach in and he just couldn't do it. Mm. So was that Ridley Scott that did that? No. In fact, I've just watched Ridley Scott's Robin Hood on Blu-ray and I've got a new idea for a feature in on our podcast, which is we watch a Blu-ray or one of us watches a Blu-ray. I'm watching them for the DVD extras and to, to learn from them uh, with the special features and so on. And once I've watched them, uh, we should give them away to the person who writes the most ridiculously positive review of us Ooh. Uh, on iTunes or whatever. So the most American review wins the dvd okay well the most american review wins the dvd of ridley scott's the blu-ray rather of ridley scott's robin hood so send us your review by next monday and we'll and this will be a used your used copy it'll be a, a used brand new copy it's got authentic uh, value as been manhandled by me and in fact i got it at a charity shop so wow this it, sounds great yeah, it's organic. <laughs> I, I actually might... And it's, I, not, it's not very good as well. So the, <laughs> it's a triple whammy. You can have a crap third-hand Blu-ray. And it's not very good. <laughs> like it skips or the quality isn't good? No, no, it's just not a good film. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, what a great... Oh, it, Dan, you've really figured this whole thing out. This is a great angle. I got it. Thank you. Now, listen, we've got a, we've got a guest. Oh, yes. So the guest is my business tutor, James. And last year, I decided to start a production company. So I decided to learn how to do business. And I went on a business course that was absolutely brilliant. So I decided to invite my tutor, James, on to tell us a bit about what we're doing here. So are you there, James? I am. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> Have you, you obviously haven't heard it. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I was really going to say I'm not bad. But no, yeah, really, really thanks for having me on, guys. Um, I quite like it when um, Americans don't bother with accents or people don't bother with accents in films. I think it's quite endearing. I liked it with Sean Connery in um, Highlander as well. He was just like, I'm just going to be Scottish. Mm. I don't care if I'm supposed to be Spanish. I'm just going to just gonna do it my way anyway. I think it's funny. And with somebody like Kevin Costner, though, you don't expect them to, to do it. You just, it'd be like if Harrison Ford was Robin Hood. You wouldn't, you know he can't do it, or he wouldn't do yeah. it. You just want yeah, Harrison exactly. Ford to be doing it. But it can be irritating if, if it's something that's particularly English or particularly American, and then there's no accent. And I do think that, you know, over here, when we do films that have Americans in them, English people don't get away with you know, they got to do the accent or they're out. There's no flexibility. So even if we had your most mighty actor come over here to do some American, very American film, they're going to have to do an American accent. And we're not, we're not going to tolerate that. Yeah, I think they have to because, like, if someone has a British accent, they're automatically a villain. Yeah. <laughs> some kind of really sinister character, so they've got no choice. Right. The only person that I think that can do a really good American accent, Idris Elba, smashes it. Like, I didn't even know he was British until... I'd seen him in some kind of in Lutheran stuff. I first saw him in The Wire and just thought he was an American guy. He was, he was so good at it. I, I find that astonishing because it's it's somehow the accent really conveys this kind of geographic space. And so when you hear somebody that's like in an American TV show, and you suddenly realize that they're English, but all along you've been assuming because they're just so good at it that they're American, it really throws your mind into strange places. It's very hard to reconfigure who they are anymore. You almost just can't think about them because it's not processable because they do such a good job and it's such an inhabited accent. I don't know. We're talking too much about accents. Dan, business. We can talk about accents. Uh, okay. fact, Sorry, Dan, I completely derailed this. No, no, it's, uh, it never was close to the rails, don't worry. Uh, why do you have so many British... I mean, you worked with Ben Kingsley and... Um... I didn't specifically work with Sir Ben. 
So I worked on a TV show called Perpetual Grace Limited, and Sir Ben Kingsley was one of the stars. And um, when he was shooting his scenes, it was a very, very limited crew. I think by request and design. So he was always this very sheltered little diamond that we conveyed around by secret train and caravan. And he would do his scenes and the sun would come out and only a very few select people would be there. And <laughs> But I think just the idea of him made me lose the idea of what your question was. Was it why do we make <laughs> why do, no, why do you Why do you have, why are all actors in American stuff, why are they all British pretending to be American? Oh, here's the thing. So whenever I speak to you, I always am surprised that you have this very high opinion of Americans because I don't know what it is, but growing up and I always had this sense that English people look down on Americans as sort of this rough and tumble lot of cowboys who weren't quite educated and didn't quite know what was doing, were selfish and greedy and awful and probably shoot you with a six gun if they got the chance yeah that covers it i would say yeah oh that's true but well you made me th you made yeah. me feel like you think americans are cool i don't think i ever but that Eng went there no, no? i mean oh, okay yeah. then I, i'm mistaken so anyway americans have an impression of english people as having something a little extra a little like educationally culturally a little richer than us we so whenever I think they're casting and an English actor walks through the door, I think there's a sense of, oh, there's going to be a little something extra special here. And there's a little exotic quality that we don't have that it's just, it's tantalizing to uh, filmmakers. And so I think they have a better shot. The one accent, I think I'm very, I, I used to be a linguist. I'm very, very tuned to languages. I would say I'm very good at spotting accents, mm. but um, Sean Astin's accent in Lord of the Rings, I thought he was, I thought he was English. And I mean, that's, I can't think of a place where it slightly falters even. And I, I spoke to him not long ago. He was just saying he, um, he just hadn't practiced or anything. He just kind of, I think he got into it in a few hours or something. Oh my goodness. It was amazing. I mean, some amazing. people do have that facility. I wouldn't have thought he mm. would have that facility i don't know why i don't think he thought he he would have it he, yeah i don't it's a, a bit it's pretty amazing hmm. there must have been someone on the crew though that was from that kind of gloucester kind of stroud area because it is bang on like it's a it's a really good kind of south southwest farmer you know county accent it's bang on i agree mm. it's really really good they had a, an accent coach called roisin carty who's really really amazing i think it would be her work oh wow she's that good yeah she's good but he's good i mean but anyway, James, all right, um, let's get to the point. <laughs> Enough accent talk, sorry. And, well, no, it's, it's good. I mean... It is interesting. It is interesting. And uh, we're all learning stuff here. Um, a lot of people are learning not to listen to podcasts that have just come up randomly on their feed. But <sighs> James, on the course, when we were trying to... Uh, I was trying to learn how to have a production company, how to use business principles in entertainment. I mean, I never thought of myself as a business person and I never wanted to be one. I just wanted to do my thing. But in learning uh, how to do business, you were very keen for us all to be in the videos that we were putting out in, uh, and be the sort of front and center of uh, social media posts and things like that. And nobody wanted to do it. No, everyone's going, oh, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. I just want to do the business. I just want to make. I mean, that's how I felt. I just want to be behind the camera. I want to do my thing. I want to write, direct, and I don't want to do. Why is it important for people to be on camera and be the center of the 
of the thing that they're doing. So there's a few reasons why we do that. So to put a little bit of background into it, so you run a course with about another 20 people who all had completely different businesses. From what I remember, there was a couple of people who had various shops selling beautiful slash cool things. There was somebody who was running kind of a kids party thing. We work with people across all kind of different sectors. And it's really, really important that if you're in a relatively small business, that it has a personality that people can attach themselves to because people bond with people you know every single transaction that you make is a personal one and it's about kind of building those relationships and without being front and center within that relationship it just doesn't work people want to hide behind a logo or a set of business cards or whatever it is and it just becomes this really impersonal transactional thing and actually being part of that process being there showing people who you are and what you stand for and what your values are gives people something to kind of latch onto and say actually that reflects how i feel about things i I kind of chime with that so i want to get more involved in that relationship so yeah, so what we did is we, we get people to make little videos on their phone, just like a little minute talking to camera about themselves. And yeah, everybody absolutely mm-hmm. freaks out. <laughs> they just can't deal with it. You can see their faces drop and, you know, we say, you know, if you don't do it in the first 30 takes, put your phone down, go and do something else, pick it up again an hour later and try again. And we have people that literally will spend kind of most of the week because we see people kind of on a weekly basis who are used to on that program. They spend a whole week just panicking about this video and it doesn't go anywhere. It just goes in the group, in the WhatsApp chat with kind of 20 other people. It doesn't go anywhere. No one's going to judge them. No one's looking. Everyone's too busy bricking it about their own, too scared about their own video to worry about anybody else's. And then week in, week out, we give them slightly bigger challenges about these videos to get people more and more used to just being in front of it and talking in a way that isn't really salesy and cringy. And getting them to realise that actually what you think about yourself isn't really important. It's about how it's projected in the world and how you're seen by, by your potential customers. Is that what you'd advise people to do if they, I mean, we've got a question from Michael Jason Stokes, who's asked about realistic funding strategies for, for filmmakers. But I, I imagine for someone making a film, it's particularly important to, to do what you're suggesting. Yeah, you can't hide behind anything. You can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to sit behind the camera and not, and just going to make it in the dark and then just put it out there. It doesn't work like that. You need to form relationships with people. You need to find collaborators. You need to find people that are interested in what you're selling fundamentally. Like if you just think about you know, anything to do with the film, they talk about things and release information to build hype about that. And if you haven't got this big marketing machine behind you, you need to get people on board in a different way, which is what we kind of said to you back along was you need to document everything that you're doing and get people to be excited about it and if you're excited about it and bring the energy people will match that energy you were kind of talking that at the, at the start of the podcast you know saying you need to you need to come in being all big and, and brash and american but actually there's, there's a bit of truth to what sean was saying really in the fact that if you're excited about something people will feed off your excitement and, and reflect that back at you as if you go in going really british and going oh yeah i'm making it i'm making a film but i'm not sure it's going to be any good and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> being, being all sarcastic people aren't going to be interested you need to come in and go it's going to be awesome it's got swords in it it's going to be really fantastic people are going to chop their heads off people get excited so when you're being excited and engaging with people as you're saying for say a filmmaker who's just starting out who's trying to raise money if i came to you now and said i want to make a film how do i get the money together i haven't got anything are you talking about going on social media presumably you're mainly it's mainly social media yeah doing pitch videos Whenever you're trying to get any money from anybody, the only thing they really care about is how big your audience is. Because fundamentally, if you want people to come and see or take part in anything that you're doing, if you can say, well, I've already got two, three, five thousand people that are already into this and we haven't even produced anything yet, it shows that there's a demand for what you're going to do. 
in, whenever you're doing a film like you're already understanding with what you're doing you get little bits to get bigger bits to get bigger bits of money all the way through so at every point you need to build your audience a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger to show that it, there's a demand for what you're doing that people are interested in and you're on the right track with it all so it's just a case of being as open and telling a story all the way through you know it's about you know we kind of joke about it being your own reality tv star it's so easy to document this stuff like the, the tech that we're using today on this between us you know we've probably got what 500 quid's worth of microphone equipment and phones and stuff between us like it isn't expensive it's just about doing it really really regularly you know the, the statistics of you know if you go past six podcast episodes you're already in the top five percent of podcast makers people start this stuff and then kind of give up because it's it's difficult to kind of maintain energy and that's all business is is just not giving up you know it's just saying i'm just going to keep going I, i've done a couple of marathons people who've done marathons love talking about their own marathons but i've run a couple of marathons without having trained properly for them and i just realized that you just don't stop running you just or stumbling forward you just keep your forward momentum and running a business is exactly the same thing it's i always say to people i can't give you passion and i can't give you grit i can teach you everything else i can teach you about pricing i can teach you about marketing i can teach you about operations i can teach you about leadership all that other stuff is just skills that you can pick up but i can't make you keep giving a damn about it and i can't stop you from giving up on it and i can't i can't make you like it <laughs> everything else i can help you to do so it's, it's just a case of making sure that you're doing something that you genuinely genuinely love to do and you're not going to give up doing it no matter how hard it is because if you look at every Every successful person in whatever industry you're talking about they've, they've had so many setbacks and they've just kept going and kept going and kept going whether it's sport entertainment business cooking whatever it is they've just grafted and grafted and grafted and eventually you throw enough punches you, you get somewhere what was the last thing that you said hooking booking cooking oh cooking yeah they said hooking and i thought what over <laughs> I mean, here if you want so sorry james if you want to be top of your hooking game you just got to keep going <laughs> <laughs> you do, I guess. Uh, Sean already is. Yeah, that's what I do. If you haven't got, I'm just thinking, you know, if someone hasn't got any followers at all on social media, I mean, this is, I know so many people like this who just want to make film. They just want to, or they just want to do their thing. They haven't got any presence on social media. They haven't got any followers. How, what do you say to them? I mean, again, you just need to keep making anything and putting it out there. And if it's any good, people will find it. The amount of stuff that's out there these days, I know it, it, there's much, much more content out there, but the algorithms are also really, really good at picking up if people do, if people do like it. So I would just say anybody can make anything with a phone. Just start making stupid stuff that you like. And if you like it, other people will like it. It's as simple as that. And again, you, you listen to that many podcasts of creators that just said, for 10 years, I was just making stuff for me and my mates. And then for some reason, something kicked off and it keeps going. It's just, it is that thing. You've just got to throw enough punches and it will keep happening for you. So and there's also strategies around social media as well. You know, it's going around and following people that are doing things that are similar to you that you like, commenting on their things, starting conversations. Like social media isn't something where you just keep blurting out what you had for dinner and you've got all this stuff it's about communicating with people the social bit is the important bit not the media you need to be actually communicating with people on a, on a regular basis it's hard work like running a business or creating anything isn't easy it's not the easy way to do things having a job is infinitely easier than making something for yourself looking at it through this lens it's almost like that's all you're you're doing if you're trying to make this film you're not ever making the film you're just sort of pitching the film or trying to make those contacts like it seems like it's almost the full-time part thing of making the film is actually trying to get other people to help you make that film and i i'm assuming dan that you maybe struggled against that because you just wanted to be you know write the script find the people that are going to be in it and i'm just wondering how dan you sort of put some of these plans into action 
if you did. Well, I no, I did, in fact, because I just thought, you know, I didn't want to do the videos or anything, but I thought I'm on the course, you know, I've got to try it. I did say to James, I don't want to do that. And he was like, <laughs> no, just, you know, it was funny that the, the girl who was next to me uh, on the course, she, it was really helpful because she said, oh, no, I, don't, I don't want to be in the video. I don't want to do videos. I just want to do my thing. I don't want to do all this social media stuff. And she said exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> So I thought, God, everyone thinks that. I've got to get in front of it and do it. And then I started communicating with people. I had a sort of epiphany because James and uh, and his partner, Neil, who run the courses, were saying, why don't you want to go in front of the camera? And I was thinking, you know, well, people think I'm stupid or think, what does he know? And who's this guy? And all these kind of insecurities, there was a lot of psychology to it. So I kind of just made myself do it. And now I find myself having, frankly really lovely correspondences with people you know we were taught to be yourself and i i we were told you know just just be open and what, what james has just been saying and, and i sort of am fairly open and, and i've been corresponding with people all over the world you know who like my work and and things and it's been really very very positive i would say so yeah thank you james you know to a certain extent what we're exploring here is kind of like the new world you know, the world that I sort of grew up in was the old world where if you're going to make a movie, you have to do it in a particular type of way, unless you're going to really figure out you're going to try to raise $2 million from your friends or mortgage your house or, you know, do some sort of Steven Soderbergh in the 90s kind of a, a, a film that you just figure out how to fund it yourself. But there is this whole other way that people are still struggling to make films by working through the studios and things like that and they're not doing any social media stuff you know st my friend steve who makes uh, tv shows and films he doesn't pitch anything to anybody unless it's like mm. in a fancy office in la or hollywood or something but i really do feel like what james is talking about is kind of where every where everything is really shifting toward and even somebody like steve I could imagine in a few years, based on the sort of the state of how things are going in the big world, big TV, big films, that it may even start to resemble that kind of thing where some big filmmaker, you know, like James Gunn or something, decides he's going to make his own movie outside of everything and he's going to crowdfund it or, you know, Neil Gaiman, I could see him doing it because it's been wrestled away from that private suite where the special people meet. And now it's just come to the land and anybody can do it. But you do have to get over that social media hurdle. And I don't think that I ever could. I've tried it and I've struggled with it, but I just, I almost feel like I would rather write, and this is sad, but I would rather write 20 scripts or plays or things like that and just work on them and keep working on them rather than commit any time to trying to get any of them made in this particular way because it seems like it's its own separate world that would require all of my attention. I wouldn't be able to make anything anymore. But it's such a strange, I don't know, problem to face. Maybe it's easier, though. Could could you convert him, James? Uh, I don't think I can necessarily convert you. I think there's some of it is a muscle... And some of it you just have, to, if you have the inclination, you can work on it and get better at it. And you, the better you get, the more efficient you get at it. So initially doing 30 takes within a couple of weeks, you realize that actually the bloopers or the ums and the ahs don't make any difference. It just means it more, it's more real. And actually the only bit you need to be doing is the recording bit. You can outsource all the rest of that. So Neil, my business partner, and I, we had someone who was taking care of all of our kind of mm -hmm. TikTok admin. We would just meet once a month for an hour and record a load of stuff of us talking and, and general business you know tips and stuff like that and she would then take care of the posting all the bits of that so it doesn't have to take up that huge amount of time 
time the bit that's important is that kind of auth- authenticity is a really difficult word but it's that kind of openness and the connection that we, you kind of talked about before that's the really key bit people want to feel inside of something and part of something and that's what gets people excited and willing to then um, you know buy props and that kind of that process that Dan's kind of going through to kind of help people start to crowdfund things they want to feel part of it early doors and want to feel like they're involved in things in a way that makes them feel special so but it, but it is very it's really really it's a really different way of doing things and we, we you know we were kind of so used to the system of entertainers being on this pedestal and being really untouchable and that kind of started to get broken down in um, in the kind of indie scene in the UK there was bands started to become much more through MySpace and that kind of thing like about 20 years ago they became much more touchable by the audience or much more reachable and i think it's really great that it kind of democratizes things and it stops it from being this it's just for the big boys to kind of dole out these massive blockbuster movies and actually i think it's more interesting to have the the smaller stuff it doesn't seem to get made these days because it's not as much of a, a sure thing if it's not part of a franchise or got a got a superhero in it somewhere Okay, so thanks very much, James. Thanks for enduring the podcast with us. Um, and uh, that's all the tree talk, <laughs> tree talk, and candy floss. <laughs> yeah. I hope that was uh, it. Was great. It was uh, very useful. Yeah, thanks a lot, James. Nice to meet you, James. That was very nice. Yeah, you too. I'd, I'd ha- happily come back on again and talk about more accents. That I oh, enjoy. lovely. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Where, where can we find? Where can people find you online, James? If they've got business questions or filmmaking questions yeah so we're on tiktok we're on tiktok so it's kin awesome uk all one word k-i-n awesome uk and the website is kinawesome.co.uk but have a look on there we've got loads of free online stuff you can come and talk to us about business whenever you want to we do stuff on a friday afternoon you can pop in and say hello and we can answer your business queries great thank you very much you're welcome thanks so much james thanks james cheers um what's tiktok oh no Somebody has to go back to school. This can go in the podcast as well. We're we're just at the stage when you're trying to get investment, which we're trying to do at the moment in the in the company for for our productions. You put out a, a pitch deck, it's called, and it's a document kind of outlining what what you get for your investment, and it has to be clear to people who are investors, who are regular investors has to all, all the financial stuff in it. I don't know if you've seen Shark Tank or Dragon's Den or something. It's it's a bit like that. Uh, I've seen segments of it. Yeah. Like, I don't know. So I think I've seen early drafts of the pitch deck. Is that possible? Yeah. Right. You've seen ours, yeah. Yeah. But Dave, our art director, we got it done by a graphic designer and then Dave, the art director, has finessed it and it looks absolutely stunning. It's it's really good. So we're very excited. Mm. Um, and so how will, you, how will you begin to distribute that? Well, um, at the moment I'm... Sending it out to people, including you, I hope. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Who will uh, give me some notes on it. So again, I've been asking some friends and connections and colleagues and stuff just to give me feedback on it. And then we'll try and get it into the best state possible. And then we just send it out to anyone who's interested. Um, Mm. I'll go into this form of funding maybe in a future episode, but yeah, it's very exciting. And how long, how Um, long will this sort of last stage take before you send it out? Is this just a few days or is it such a process and such a thing there? It has to be so perfect that it's going to take weeks. I think it might take a couple of weeks just because I I think Mm. there's no point in not getting as much feedback as you can. We really want it to, to work. And it, what we're doing is, a, is a, again, I'll go into it in more detail if people want me to, but it's called equity crowdfunding. So it's like reward crowdfunding. So it's like a, you know, a Kickstarter 
except mm-hmm. that instead of rewards, you get shares in the company. So you end up owning part of the company. Oh, I see. So what's really exciting, what James was talking about, democratizing the production process, is that this could be the first kind of geek fan-owned production company, uh, which should be, that's my dream, really. Well, that's that's much better than something like NFTs. <laughs> it seems like it's, it combines that thing where you're, supporting something but then you're not just getting kind of a funny little prize yeah you know you're investing in something so it's like that that combination of this sort of crowd support which is almost old-fashioned a tiny bit Mm. but with this new angle of you're investing in something that you could you know potentially maybe make a profit i mean is that how it works if if you own that's the idea yeah i mean if the company makes a profit and you've got shares in it you can make a profit so Mm. yeah so anyway i'll go into it in more detail if people are interested uh, because it's a new way of funding uh filmmaking yeah that's very exciting yeah Um, But I've got a list here of things to talk to you about. Okay. I saw a great film on Disney called No One Will Save You. And I just want to recommend that to you and our listener. Uh, Julia? Really? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to say anything about it, really. Apart from the fact that it's got almost no speech in it. Have a look at it. And why, why why don't you want to say anything about it? Is just saying anything about it somehow give the whole thing away? Well, it won't give the whole thing away, but I think you're better off going in not knowing what's going to happen in it. I would just advise going in cold, but I think it's really, really, really good film. Okay. No One Will Save You, and that's on Disney+. Plus. And also another recommendation I've got is Ballerina by uh, Lee Chung-hyun on Netflix. And that is a Korean kind of John Wick. Hmm type thing and i watched that last night when i was failing to sleep ballerina uh, and it's a really very interesting like interestingly directed film and it's got some very interesting techniques using close-ups and close-ups to suggest mood rather than than fact than the sort than exposition which is is very interesting so i recommend that to people mm. so we have we have a, a question from Juliet, our listener. <laughs> uh, Hello, Juliet. Hello, Juliet. And she asks us to talk about casting. Do you have anything to... She just wants us to chat about casting. So. General ideas about casting? Well, just just talk about casting, I guess. It's quite an interesting, wasn't it? So the first thing that came to mind is sort of like what would happen in our TV land when we were working on, you know, Patriot or Perpetual Grace or maybe before we knew who was what. So Steve would, we would just start pitching around actors that we really like for certain parts. And we would actually print out pictures of them and put them on the wall and then assemble all these people that we were thinking about, almost like a strange family photo where, you know, like there's Ben Kingsley and then uh, Louis Gomez and whatever. I mean, there is there is a, a role, like there there are people that are really, really, very specialized in the casting world where they're just kind of have the magic touch in both finding the right performers for particular roles and then finding the right ensembles. But it's often the filmmakers themselves Mm. that have some desire or feel for at least some of the characters and they will, you know, often write their things with those characters in mind, you know, sort of like Tarantino wrote Pulp Fiction with Samuel Jackson in mind or or writes a lot of the, a lot of films that have Samuel Jackson that Quentin Tarantino, he, he knew he was going to have Samuel Jackson in them. And I think it really helps 
filmmakers to write characters that they already sort of know the actor mm. and you don't have to do a lot of work it's sort of like the character's fully there and present in their mind and they can just hear them talking and there's a, a great deal of ease and then i think it gets tricky when you don't have an idea of who this person is and that's maybe when you start leaning into the casting director to find you that magic mm. somebody that can not only fit the role but it's also like you're not just trying to find the best person you're trying to find the best person who also matches somehow with the great amoeba of humanity that will be a part of this film yeah i've just been casting for my play which is on next month in in lancaster in halifax in in northern england and one of the actors obviously i know my play inside out and it's a comedy and one of the actors was so funny in his audition that he, he made me laugh out loud. I mean, I was just sitting there watching the screen mm. and he's so funny. And maybe we can get him on. It was an actor called James Oates who was so just hilarious. But anyway, that's beside the point. But um, I mean, well, one of the things that you do when you're doing your plays is you, you usually try to find actors with some kind of name recognition, Well, uh, which, which we don't do over here at all, <laughs> or maybe we do, but I don't do it because it, it seems impossible. Like I, really, I can't <laughs> afford it and I, they wouldn't be interested in being in some little play in some little town and some little theater and nowhere. But you seem to do that. And it seems to work for you. I like to get to know, I mean, I do tend to work with the same actors again sometimes. And I try not to do that because of what you said, it's very easy. But I like to get to know actors beforehand through my career rather than suddenly having to cast them. Uh. If I know them, then I know, I know what they can do and what they're like. And then beforehand, <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit odd. It's like going, you know, saying to actors, hey, let's be friends. No, I think that's a really common and strong way to make film or tv is and you'll see it a lot that directors will you know like steve and his tv shows you know the cast of perpetual grace is maybe 60 to 75 percent the cast mm -hmm. of patriot mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of people that he and and then the crew as well there's a lot of people that he carries forward just because he knows them and knows what they can do and you know i think he's that's something that you see with a lot of filmmakers and tv makers is that they tend to rely on their old faithful friends yeah if you've got like a sound recordist who you don't know then you're doing your thing but you're also kind of monitoring the sound recording because you don't know whether they're going to be yeah. doing it right or not but what you want is a crew of people who you know you can just they'll just do their thing and you don't have to think about it at all and i suppose you only evolve that i think Probably that's also why directors talk to each other quite a lot. And now, your play, A Joke, is being performed early November, like the 3rd, 4th, isn't it? Yeah, it's the 1st to the 4th. In and you're casting it now? Like you haven't started the rehearsal process? No, no, we've cast it. It's, we've cast okay. it. Okay. Yeah. I know we cast it a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. What about your play? What's what's happening with your play? So the play is called uh, Claire in the Chair in the Cemetery. It's about a woman who goes to live in a cemetery. And why she does that is sort of mysterious and something that we figure out as things go along. But she's really just come to live there. But the grave digger and the tombstone maker and the undertaker don't know she's really come there to live. They think she's come there to die. And so they're under that impression. And so the grave digger is digging her uh, hole and the tombstone maker has made her, her tombstone. And the undertaker keeps coming by with coffins. When they find out that she's not dying, they sort of take matters into their own hands and that's going to be it's weird we both have plays coming out in november mine's yeah. coming out the following week um november 10th or 11th or something and that'll be at next stage in putney vermont and our listener juliet 
uh, has a family member, I think, or a friend, I, can't, I think it's a family member, who lives nearby. I think isn't the, that strange? Isn't she what, what, someone that she is related is to? Is a set carpenter or something? Or I'm imagining that. I can't. Yeah, they have worked with the, the theater company that I'm yeah. involved with. Which is great. So just yeah. say again, where, where can people see that if they're near Putney, Vermont? I'm not gonna, no, I'm not going to. They're going to have to rewind. Okay. Again. Yeah. And listen closely with a pencil. Yeah. It's next stage. Pay attention, people. Uh, next stage arts, Putney, Vermont. So, and this is strange, but I'm still, uh, it's, the script is not complete. It's almost complete. Shameful. I know. The actors have been in rehearsal for a month. And last night I went to the studio space and we read through the, the latest draft. And it's getting very close to being done. But they've all been very kind about it. Surprisingly, it seems that they're enjoying this kind of very messy business of the script changing and things happening. I don't, I, I don't know why they're being so nice to me. I, but they are. I imagine it's quite exciting. If you're, if you've got, you know what you're about, and then, uh, I mean, I'd say that's a sign of, of good actors. Oh, I like that. I wish I'd said that. <laughs> Next time I see them, I'll say that. I'll steal that from you. Yeah, certainly. So I also went to see a film called The Creator. Oh, yes. Which is by Gareth Edwards. Gareth Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and our plan, our secret plan was that we would both see it. Yeah. And we would talk about it. But I couldn't get on the right horse <laughs> to get there. Well, I got the, the right horse, but I went to the Odeon in Crewe in Cheshire. And I saw about one twentieth of the screen was green from the fire exit sign. The film was just slightly out of focus all the way through. Oh, my goodness. And it kept flickering for some reason. So it was a bit painful. But to be fair to them, they did give me my money back when I did an English moan. But this is a really, really interesting event in film history, I would say, because it's made in a very, very interesting way. It's made on a prosumer camera. So the camera's about, I think it's about $4,000, which is a lot, you know, to anybody normal, but in professional, you know, in IMAX terms, it's insanely cheap. And Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's a, a small light camera. I think I think it's a Sony FX3. Um, I could be wrong. But and Gareth operated himself. He 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 was the, he was the cameraman. And uh, that's this sounds ridiculous. But I didn't know you could do that. Right. I thought you had to just have a DOP, a director of photography. And I never I can never remember. Do we call it, is it a DO, do we call it a DOP and you call it a DP? Is that right? Uh, that sounds right. That I, I didn't know I was allowed to operate the camera. I mean, so I always think, hmm, I, just, I could just want to line it up myself. I thought I was kind of rude or I wasn't allowed to. I mean, sounds silly, but there's Gareth running around. I don't, I don't know did. if you typically can. I mean, he, he might have had to have some kind of membership in the Guild of Photographers or whatever the DOP, DP Guild is in order to do that. Because it, it is often... Well, he was a cameraman. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, it's it? because it is very select. So one of the first film TV experiences I had uh, 20 years ago, this TV show came to New Hampshire called The Brotherhood of Poland, New Hampshire by David E. Kelly. It was, a, it turned out to be a pretty bad TV show, but he's a pretty prolific and solid TV writer. But I did PA work on that. Basically, I was, I would drive the film to the airport every night. It's like a two hour drive from here and the film would get sent off. This was in film days. Um, but one thing that I was made keenly aware of was how 
specific uh, everyone's role was. So if you weren't the cameraman, you couldn't touch the camera. You couldn't even carry it, you know, from one place to another. Everything was very owned and possessed by one person or one group of people. And if you weren't that, that person or a member of that group, you couldn't touch it or do any task related to it. So everybody's duties and objects were incredibly separated. Mm. So, yeah, that was my impression as well. But now here's Gareth uh, running along the beaches <laughs> with his Sony FX3, if that's what it is. Yeah, and he had a, a, he had a, a light on a boom. So I think he had a single light and they bounced it off objects, you know, off the floor or something. And they kind of switch scenes, you know, setups in 20 minutes or something. So that really, really appeals to me, that idea of being so light-footed and just being able to get mm. on with it. And another thing he did was use real environments, real locations, and then uh, digitally extend them or do the effects afterwards. So they shot the whole film, then edited it, and then then put in the effects afterwards. And the effects are staggering. It looks amazing. It's not a great script. I enjoyed watching it, but I don't think it, anyone's going to say it's a, it's a masterpiece of a script, but it looks absolutely amazing. And there are some lovely uh, ideas and surprises in there. The two things that I read about the movie were that thing you mentioned about lights and that how that camera in particular is very good at shooting in low light and capturing everything you needed to capture without all these lights, which allows a great deal of facility. Like you just move, like you said, through scenes. You go from this scene to this scene and you don't have to do this huge, massive lighting setup, which is an extremely cumbersome part of most filmmaking is like the light, setting up the lights and getting it all in place. And then the second thing was that it, it seems almost like you wouldn't think about it, but using these exotic locations and actually going there and shooting in Cambodia and Thailand instead of sort of faking it, it seems to have been like half of the work of almost the CGI. You know, like he just kind of like, he, there's, there's going to be amazing CGI, but there's this beautiful actual set that instead of recreating it digitally or finding something local that sort of looked almost right, he just went wherever, you know, where he goes to Thailand for a bridge, he goes to Cambodia for a mountain. And just being rigorous in terms of that traveling um, and getting to those locations seems to be another magical ingredient to this, at least the visual part of this film. Yeah, I think it is. And he, he said that traveling anywhere with with the this limit small crew was cheaper than building everything artificially in CGI. So it's really very inspiring and very, very exciting for anyone who's making films without that enormous budget. Of course, the budget was 80 million, so it's not like it was uh, dirt cheap, but it, it's very exciting. And, and it, but that, that camera that he used is close to hand, you know? Yeah. You, you're, you're inches and, and just a few dollars away from being able to shoot at least the digitally affected free footage that Gareth Edwards shot, and that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's brilliant. Did did he do the effects himself, or did that get farmed out, or did, do you know anything about that part? Yeah, that was Industrial Light and Magic. But he okay. he knows, I mean, he's really good at His effects are amazing. I mean, he's amazing and knows what he's doing with effects, which is half the battle, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what I'm doing on set, but I know what I want, and I know how to ask other people who can do it what I want them to do, and I think... I know with his, his 
or earlier film Monsters, he did all the the effects, and they're really yeah. very good. And that was sort of I think yeah. I think he did a similar thing where he basically you know he went with friends and they just sort of did this road trip and shot a movie along the way. Yeah, and then he put in all the effects afterwards and just sat home in it like a home computer. But that makes it sound simple. But I think that the thing is is that. Not in everybody can do that. Even if you have the same tools, he's able to achieve something a bit remarkable with the same tools that maybe I have on my computer right now, right now, but I can't do it. Yeah. It's a lot like Kubrick's 2001. You know, like somehow Kubrick was able to figure out how to make these astonishing cinematic effects that nobody else mm -hmm. could quite do he could just he just everybody had the same tools but he figured out how to do it you know like he navigated his way to the beauty and i think gareth edwards somehow is able to do that when you and i would just have like in monsters like a, a really terrible godzilla pop up with flashy green screen edges showing all around and he's able to do something that i mean maybe it's just he might just have an incredible visual sense and um i think he i think he has yeah, yeah. I mean, it's knowing what to do with the tools, and it? it's the people, not the tools. So right, um, yeah, he's just a natural. Neil Neil Blomkamp is very good at that too. He is, yeah. He's yeah, the guy. Yeah, just like this astonishing double talent of being able to make movies, but then being able to create the visual effects that need to be in there, and then to make them sublime, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, for next to nothing, somehow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so I apologize for not saying that, but you say. Visually amazing, story okay, but worth seeing, and it's... Uh, yeah, I definitely see it at the cinema as well. Yeah. Because it's... Uh, yeah, I'm going to go and try and see it in IMAX. Just, just to, I want to be able to see it properly, but... Well, you've only seen it, you've seen it with all the green light on it, and the... Yeah. <laughs> and you got your money back, so you have that extra... Yeah. 10 pounds or whatever, <laughs> or euros. So, shall we leave it there? I think we've done... Sure. We've done... But good work here. We didn't talk much about hold, hold Excalibur specifically. Should we do that? I, I think we did. We did in terms of the just about the funding and stuff. I think that's that's okay. all I wanted to cover. I mean, that's all. Do we even doing. say Hold Excalibur? No, but I think that's <laughs> fine. I think that's that's fine not to. <laughs> I, f I feel like James would be like, say the name of the thing. <laughs> no, I think James would be tell us just to be. I'll be casual, be amiable, and be ourselves. And you're you're just using James cleverly in this instance to. Get, yeah. out, get out of saying it or saying face, it. facing this problem. <laughs> Next time we're going to say it right up front. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is going to do it for us. Our warmest thanks to James Crawley for his wise business counsel. There's plenty more of that at his website, kinawesome.co.uk. And more instant hits of terribly good advice from James on every blessed social media platform at KinAwesomeUK. That's K-I-N-A-W-E-S-O-M-E-U-K. And don't forget to leave us a stunning review on iTunes to win Dan's used Blu-ray secondhand copy of Predator. We'll announce Juliet as the winner as soon as Juliet leaves us a review. Please feel free to email your questions to podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. Sign up for updates on Dan's upcoming film, Hold Excalibur, at secretplanet.co.uk. How to Make a Film was hosted by Dan Freeman and Sean Hurley. That's me. Produced by Jamie Walsh. Edited by Ethan Walsh. <laughs>